Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science. So, let's get started. Well, if you caught last week's Bench Talk show about the Hubble Space Telescope, you know that we finished on an exciting note. We were broadcasting a public domain NASA documentary about the history of the Hubble Space Telescope. Apparently, within weeks of launching the scope back in 1990, NASA scientists realized that there was a problem. There was apparently an aberration in the giant mirror on the scope. The images they were getting of very far-off galaxies were fuzzy. It was like the lens was smeared with grease. That's not the case. They basically found was that the way the lens was ground was a little bit off. So what they decided to do was to basically correct for it by adding an additional lens, basically the same way we might wear glasses to correct our vision problems. So we're going to complete that documentary today. Before we start that, however, you might be wondering... How did they screw this up so badly? How could they spend $1.5 billion to send this telescope to orbit the Earth and not have it working perfectly? Well, like a good government agency should, they did have a panel of experts commissioned to get to the bottom of that question. And essentially, the blame was not only on the people who ground the original telescope, which was actually my alma mater, the University of Arizona in Tucson, It was a private company called Perkin Elmer who was responsible for quality control of the grinding. The optical device they used to check the curvature of the telescope mirror was not functioning properly. It was not constructed correctly. So this private company is responsible, but also NASA and the University of Arizona, presumably, should have caught the error beforehand. And so they're not blameless either. So in 1993, three years after its original launch, NASA astronauts took the space shuttle back to the Hubble Space Telescope to install this fix, to fix it. Now, they were supposed to visit the telescope for maintenance and repairs and updates anyway, so it really wasn't a radical idea to go back and work on this telescope. And actually, the Hubble scope has been worked on by NASA astronauts five times over the last 29 years. That's the life of the scope. The last visit being a decade ago, because they don't have the space shuttle anymore. Anyway, that's where we stop in this NASA documentary about the Hubble Space Telescope, right at the time of the fix. So let's continue to hear it. It's only about 10 minutes more. It was 19 years old at the time when we went up there and the batteries were original equipment. And so they're charging and discharging, you know, like you're, think about your phone, your cell phone. You know, you're, you're lucky to get a year or two out of that battery, right? So this is original battery. So we replaced the batteries. Those are still working great. But then some of the more uh, interesting parts were uh, actually replacing some of the science instruments. So we took up a new camera and a new spectrograph and put those in. And then we also fixed some broken instruments up there. There was a broken camera and a broken spectrograph. These are the science instruments so that when the light comes in the telescope, 
these are the things that take the pictures and, and do all the science uh, for the you know for the astronomers and everybody back here on Earth. The breaking off of one of the hand tools that uh, Massimino, Mike Massimino, had to do. Houston, you ready for this? Yeah, we're ready. Okay, man, you have a go. Here we go. Uh, it was pretty exciting watching okay. that from inside because uh, that had a lot of um, bearing on whether we got that part of the mission accomplished. So it was pretty interesting. A third time I got to go back, and you know, I just can't tell you how thrilled I was and how thrilled I was that we had a great team and we were able to leave the Hubble in even better shape, such that now we're able to celebrate the 25th anniversary. I was a little bit worried that when we deployed the Hubble, you know, I'd feel really sad again. Um, but this time I didn't. I just felt thrilled that we hadn't broken the Hubble, that we'd upgraded it, that it was in the best shape of its life, and that we'd done our job and a little bit more to give Hubble a very long life, bringing back all of its rewards to us here on planet Earth in terms of great discoveries. The fact that astronauts were able to, to go up and fix Hubble uh, was, was really a groundbreaking thing, and it tells a really critical part of NASA's history when science and human space exploration work together really critically for the first time. Without the repair missions, you wouldn't have Hubble um, uh, lasting 25 years. Hubble's best days are still to come. Astronauts and support staff on the ground had made tremendous improvements to Hubble's already majestic payload. With the repairs completed, Hubble blew the world away with what it saw and what we now could behold. Sharp, clean, and crisp data. Images of stars forming and ultra-deep field images of thousands of galaxies, showing just a glimpse at how big this universe is. I do have a favorite Hubble image. I have a couple of them, but the one that pops into my mind is the Cone Nebula, and it's an early release image. And the reason I like that is because it, it showed that we installed the advanced camera for surveys correctly. Hubble has brought just knowledge of the universe that I think is, is beyond uh, belief to the normal person and some of the discoveries of the Hubble Space Telescope um, in terms of the, the universe expanding are just, uh, just mind-boggling. Every time I look at it, I stare and I stare and I want to see what's in that finger, you know, what's in that pillar. And interestingly, if you look at it in the infrared, you can actually see into it. The Hubble Ultra Deep Field was released in 2004 when I was in grad school, and to this day, I really remember the day uh, when that image came out. My, my grad advisor printed this image, this beautiful image with galaxies that we'd never seen before on a huge sheet of paper and rolled it out on the table for us grad students to look at and just said, you know, look at this image, look what's here, what can we, what can we learn from this? And so I really loved that visual, um, sort of tangible representation of look at this beautiful thing and what can we learn. Circling the globe at five miles per second, this school bus sized observatory was the most technologically advanced device ever launched and has stayed amazingly advanced through five repair and upgrade missions. From the first mission critical optics repair on space shuttle mission STS-61 to the last servicing mission, STS-125 which added the Wide Field Camera 3 and replaced or improved sensors, batteries, and numerous other components. Hubble was an incredible undertaking. If I look at the very last Hubble servicing mission, STS-125, it was perhaps the most ambitious single mission 
that this agency has ever undertaken. It was five spacewalks back to back to back to back to back. That's no break in between the spacewalks uh, like we normally will do. The magnitude of the things that they wanted to accomplish almost meant certain failure somewhere. But the crew said, the crew and the whole team, the, the team that put the mission together said, look, we can do this. You know, we will have accomplished so much more in making Hubble better than it is ever, ever believed to be. So Hubble gave us a, an excellent example of uh, people, a team that was not afraid of failure. Failure was not an option. We were going to succeed. What's really exciting to me is just the breadth of the scientific discoveries it's been able to make. Everything from the age of the universe, proving the existence of black holes, to discovering brand new things like the universe is accelerating due to mysterious dark energy. I grew up, telescopes put into orbit wouldn't last more than three, at most five years. So they never had a chance to grow on you, to become part of your, your soul of expectation for the next astronomical discovery. With Hubble, the fact, I think, the fact that it was repairable meant it could just stay with you for decades, now 25 years. Everybody knows Hubble. It's, it's really true. Worldwide, all throughout the U.S., everybody, all ages, all walks of life, you say Hubble Space Telescope, people know what you're talking about. That's extraordinary. More than a simple telescope, Hubble is humanity's grand observatory of the vastness of space. And we've kept exploring by staring into the universe and moving forward. The great thing about Hubble now, this year, is that it's still going strong, and we expect it to last out till 2020, maybe even longer. Uh, but we definitely have to start thinking about the future, and NASA right now is building and putting together and testing the James Webb Space Telescope. That's going to be put even further away from the Earth and Hubble and be able to see much further into the, into the universe and provide even more information and even better images. I think that's going to be very exciting when we get down into space. The team here at NASA will continue that momentum with the next great observatory coming soon to the NASA inventory, the James Webb Space Telescope, with a primary mirror six times larger than Hubble's and over a hundred times more powerful. There are places that the Hubble just can't see. The Hubble Space Telescope can't see inside the dark cocoons of dust and gas where baby stars are born and planets form. The James Webb Space Telescope in the infrared will be able to peer into those cocoons and show us the details of those first moments of star and planet formation. The big thing is how exciting space is for the future. It's going to be incredible. We're at, at the cusp of a new era with new machines being designed, new missions being flown. We are going to visit other planets. and I'm, I just hope the young people can get excited about taking us that next step. I can't wait to watch them do it. Uh, it's a great time. Growth in space um, for kids that are involved in science and technology. I think space is a great way to aim your uh, your career at. Um, I think we're gonna we're gonna discover new things. I'm really excited that NASA's got a number of programs going, including the James Webb Telescope, which will bring the same kind of discoveries Hubble has. So uh, the future's pretty bright. Today, Hubble is still making new discoveries seeing distant stars and galaxies that had never been seen before, improving our knowledge of the early universe and clarifying images of our closest neighbors. Look at the Washington Post on the front page of the Washington Post. There's a colored picture of a brand new galaxy just discovered by Hubble. 
and to be able to look at that picture and say, my gosh, we did that. That's exciting. That's exciting. Hubble has consistently taken us to places we've never been, visually, of course, and uh, given uh, and empowered us to answer questions that in a previous generation of telescopes we couldn't even pose. From comets and asteroids to some of the most distant galaxies yet discovered, Hubble continues to revolutionize astronomy in our solar system and beyond. Hubble has changed the way we view our universe and ourselves. There's no doubt that the Hubble Space Telescope has changed the way that we as astronomers understand the universe. But I think even more significantly than that, Hubble's changed the way that the world views space. And when you look back on the last 25 years of Hubble, it's just incredible because we have made major breakthroughs in almost every field of astrophysics from planetary nearby to our own galaxy to the very, very beginning of time. Uh, and to think that we mere humans are sitting here and, and getting close to understanding this incredible universe that's around us. And Hubble has been a key component in that over the last 25 years. We're on a never-ending journey, and the Hubble Space Telescope celebrates its quarter century of exploration as part of that journey. So you've been listening to the end of a documentary filmed by NASA to commemorate the 25th year of operation of the Hubble Space Telescope back in 2015. It's 29 years now. If you want to watch the video yourself rather than just listen to it, just do a video search on the internet for NASA's documentary film Hubble 25. NASA's documentary film Hubble 25. The video is 32 minutes long. We'll put a link to the video on our Facebook page, too. Now, there's still great astronomy being done on land-based telescopes as well. Professor Scott Miller of Maysville Community College is going to tell us about a couple of important astronomy research projects taking place right now. One project uses a telescope located in Chile, and the other is in Hawaii. Both of these researchers are studying black holes, and Scott will tell us how these observations are interfacing with the theory of relativity. Take it away, Professor. Scott here. One of the hallmarks of science is that it is never done. There is constant testing and retesting to be done. In some cases, current theories simply are validated, hopefully within tighter and tighter constraints. This gives scientists greater confidence when they apply these theories to new observations to seek explanation. In other cases, current theories are challenged. The outcome of this can be the development of an even better theory, one that not only can explain things the previous theory explained, but to explain other observations the older theory could not explain. This process of testing and retesting not only leads to better theories, within which are better explanations of observed phenomenon, but is not stagnated by knowledge that is done and needs no further change, which happens in other fields of study. Some see this constant testing as a weakness, for it is far better in their way of thinking to have the answers all wrapped up and thus to be proclaimed as such. But in the end, further refinement leads to better understanding, making this testing paramount to true knowledge acquisition. 
In the last few months, the results of testing leading to further confirmation were announced with regards to tests of general relativity. General relativity was proposed by Dr. Albert Einstein in 1915. It was the rival of the current theory of gravity at that time, Newton's law of gravity. Newton's law of gravity worked well for many observed phenomena. It could explain why the moon orbited the earth and the earth, along with the other planets, orbited around the sun. It worked really well in cases where gravity was not overwhelming, generally when considering phenomena involving bodies at great distances from each other compared to their size. But there had been observations that could not be reconciled with Newton's law of gravity or variations of it. Einstein's theory of general relativity was able to explain the whys of these observations better than Newton's theory could and became the theory scientists used to begin to explain things gravitational. The general theory was not without its detractors, and other gravity theories have been proposed to compete with it. Many of those have come and gone. Still, scientists today do not stop testing it, making predictions with it that can then be looked for. This past summer, two more announcements were made that are in line with predictions of that theory. Both observations involved the study of a particular star in a particular circumstance, but both involved different teams using different instruments. In the end, both came to the same overall conclusions. The first announcement came in July when a team led by Reinhard Genzel announced that they had detected the shift in a star's light caused by the extreme gravity of the central black hole in our galaxy known as Sagittarius A star, or Sag A star for short. To put this in perspective, Newton's law of gravity predicts either a blue shift or a red shift of light for an object moving toward us or away from us, respectively. But general relativity predicts an additional redshift in the light from a star precisely because it is in the gravitational field of another object. Detecting this additional redshift was the goal of this team's work. Genzel's team observed a star called S2, which orbits a central black hole in an elliptical orbit that carries it within 120 astronomical units of the black hole. An astronomical unit is the average distance between the Earth and the Sun, about 93 million miles. S2's orbit carries it closer to the central black hole than any other star in the cluster of stars that orbit this central behemoth. General relativity models the universe as consisting of space-time, a four-dimensional framework consisting of space and time, with time treated as a fourth dimension. Gravity in this model is not due to some action-at-a-distance type force like Newton proposed, but a warping of this space-time by the presence of mass. The more mass that is present in a particular location of space-time, the more warping it can produce. Black holes do the best warping, creating a region around them where not even light can escape. And light climbing out of that gravitational well is robbed of its energy as it tries to get to us and that causes the additional redshift that is not explained by Newton's law of gravity. Because S2 dove deeper into the gravitational well of Sag A star than any other star in the region, while keeping out of the region that is the point of no return, known as the event horizon, light from S2 had to do that same struggle to reach telescopes on Earth. Newton's law of gravity would account for a redshift of S2 as it swung, as several thousand kilometers per second along our line of sight, while the relativistic redshift produced by light crawling out of the gravity well amounted to about 200 kilometers per second. 
To further nail down the observation, a second team, led by Andrea Gez, continued watching S2 as it looped around Sag A star. Her team wanted to catch S2 during a third important part of its journey around Sag A star, that part of its journey when it would pull out of its headlong rush toward us and slowed. The extra work paid off for them when they too announced the detection of a relativistic redshift of about 200 kilometers per second. Taken together, this is science as science is supposed to be. A constant testing of what is thought to be known based on theories in order to provide checks on those theories. In this case, two different teams using two different instruments and analysis methods independently came to the same conclusion. And the testing continues. There are some inconsistencies in some of the parameters that they calculated from their observation. These are now being worked on in order to tighten up what is known about this system. And both teams hope to go after another prediction of general relativity. This was first observed with the planet Mercury in its orbit around the Sun, and was one of the first successful explanations provided by the general theory of relativity over Newton's law of gravity that for scientists started them to consider this newer theory. This observation is known as the precession of the orbit of a body. Mercury's near point to the Sun in its orbit precesses, that is, it too orbits the Sun. This means that if you watch Mercury over time, you would notice a slight shift in its overall orbit around the Sun. The orbit would look closed, but its orientation would be observed to change. The two teams and others are now on a hunt for this same precession in the orbit of stars around Sag A star. General Relativity predicts what that shift should be, and will be on these various teams to observe the stars over time to see if a precession is observed. Testing and retesting. Refusal to sit on one's laurels, but instead making more certain those laurels are even real to begin with. That is what science is all about, and why our knowledge of the universe now is far greater than if we had just sat by and accepted ancient lore. You are listening to Bench Talk, the weekend science, here on WFMP 106.5 FM here in Louisville, Kentucky. On to the next story about science. Hey, let's end this show with some science news on the fly. And then there's this paper published in the March 2019 issue of Stroke that reports that postmenopausal women who drink two or more artificially sweetened drinks per day are at a significantly greater risk of having a stroke or a heart attack. Now, these researchers followed a group of 81,000 women who were 50 years of age or older for almost 12 years beginning in the mid to late 1990s. Compared to a cohort of women who drank less than one diet drink per week, the high consumers, that's two or more diet drinks per day, had a 23% greater chance of having a stroke and a 29% increased chance of having a heart attack. And the chances of dying from any cause increased by 16% in these heavy consumers of artificially sweetened drinks. And then there's the paper from August 6, 2019. It's in the issue of Cancer Epidemiology. It was exploring the correlations between red meat consumption and breast cancer in women. 
What I found surprising in this paper is that if red meat was replaced with the meat of poultry, like chicken, etc., the rates of breast cancer actually decreased. How the meat was cooked didn't seem to make a difference, and the iron content of the meat didn't seem to play a factor in breast cancer. These authors recommended that women replace the red meat they consumed with chicken instead. And this backs up a previous article in the same journal, Cancer Epidemiology. This article was from September 5th, 2018, and it was a meta-analysis of 16 different published research articles that were examining links between meat consumption and breast cancer. This meta-analysis concluded that the consumption of unprocessed red meat increased the risk of breast cancer by 6%, while the consumption of processed red meat, you're talking hot dogs, bacon, ham, salami, that was associated with a 9% increase in the risk of breast cancer. Now, the authors didn't think that that 6% rise in breast cancer rates in people who ate a lot of unprocessed meat was anything to worry about. They didn't think it was statistically significant. But that the 9% rise seen when eating processed meat was of concern. A link between processed red meat consumption and other types of cancer have already been observed. Here we're talking colorectal cancer, pancreatic cancer, prostate cancer. Now we can probably add breast cancer to that list of dangers of eating processed red meat. No one appears to know the biochemical mechanism for how processed meat might actually increase the likelihood of breast cancer, but these authors think it might be the chemical preservatives that are routinely added to processed meat. The authors of the 2018 paper do admit, however, that they couldn't control for all possible extraneous risk factors. It's just too challenging to do that with human subjects. The authors also caution that the observation of a correlation does not mean that there's actually a cause and effect relationship between diet and cancer. Check out our Bench Talk episode from June 24, 2019 for a more thorough discussion about the dangers of correlation studies like this one. You'll hear about the Russian hairy bald rule on that episode. But the lead author of this study, Dr. Marianne Farvid of Harvard University, is quoted in the New York Times as saying, quote, My recommendation is that it's good for women to cut down on processed meat, unquote. That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, the week in science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word benchtalkradio at gmail.com Now all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives that's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes 
If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMPLP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you. Thank you.